Good evening from London. I want to welcome everyone to uh, LSE's online events platform. My name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department and director of the U.S. Center uh, at LSE, which is hosting today's lecture and discussion about American democracy. Today's discussion is part of the U.S. Center's um, Fallon Family Lecture Series, which is made possible by the generosity of the John and Amy Phelan Foundation. And it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speakers, Professor Robert Lieberman of Johns Hopkins University and Professor Suzanne Mettler of Cornell University. Rob is the Krieger Eisenhower Professor of Political Science at Johns Hopkins. He has written extensively about American and comparative politics, including award-winning books on race and public policy. Former provost at Johns Hopkins and the co-convener of the American Democracy Collaborative, he has received fellowships from the Russell Sage Foundation, the American Philosophical Society, and the German Marshall Fund. This year, he is the John G. Winant um, Visiting Professor of Government at uh, Oxford. Um, and uh, while he joins us from uh, Baltimore soon, uh, he hopes to be uh, in Oxford uh, as the visiting professor of government there. Suzanne Mettler is the John L. Senior Professor of American Institutions in the Government Department at Cornell. She's the author of six books on American institutions and politics. She has won numerous book awards and prizes, and her essays and op-eds are featured in the New York Times among other leading outlets. Member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the recipient of uh, Guggenheim and Radcliffe Fellowships, Suzanne serves on the board of the Scholar Strategy Network, the American Academy of American and Political and Social Sciences, and is another driving force behind the American Democracy Collaborative that she, Rob, and others convene. So when I approached Rob and Suzanne last October to talk about their new book, Four Threats, The Recurring Crises of American Democracy, I thought there was a very good chance that former President Trump would not accept the November result. What I had not figured on is that we would be meeting here on day two of Trump's second impeachment trial. But here we are, and we could not be in better hands for helping us make sense the current moment in American politics by putting it in some historical perspective. A few words about the format today before we get, get underway. Rob and Suzanne are going to get us started with about 25 minutes of uh, opening comments or remarks. And then what we'll do is we'll open it up to uh, discussion. And we've left really plenty of time for questions. So, you know, please don't be shy. What you can do is just send your questions to us via the Q&A function on Zoom. And I'll do my level best to get as many of them in, in as possible uh, to Rob and Suzanne during the discussion period. Now, normally, at this point, I would ask all of you to put your hands together to give our speakers one of those very warm LSE welcomes. That's not possible, of course, today. So in lieu of applause, I really encourage you to pose questions in the Q&A period for Rob and Suzanne. 
Robin, Suzanne, welcome to LSE's online platform. It's really great to have you with us. The platform is yours. All right, well, hello everyone. And thank you so much, Peter. And thank you for welcoming us to LSE. Of course, we only wish we were all together in London. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I'm here in upstate New York with several inches of snow on the ground. and But surprisingly, the sun is shining. So um, this is a rare moment. Um, so, you know, it was just over one month ago that we were watching in horror as hundreds of Trump supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol, trying to interfere with the final step in confirming the results of the 2020 presidential election. They desecrated the sanctuary of American democracy with the Confederate flags and Nazi symbols by trying to overturn the will of the voters with brute force. Six people died, many police officers were badly wounded, and of course it could have been much worse. Most shocking of all, the insurrection was incited by the president himself, who had spent the past few months denying his loss in the election, despite all evidence to the contrary. To their credit, members of Congress reconvened that evening and ultimately confirmed the election results. But 139 members of the House Republican Caucus, the majority of them, plus several Republican senators, refused to recognize the election results from some states. Rob and I sent our book, Four Threats, off to press last spring. And over the, the next nine months leading up to the election and in the months since, damage to American democracy escalated. And so many events that occurred reminded us of occurrences in the American past that we had written about in our book at other times when democracy was also in danger. And the January 6th insurrection took us back to the late 19th century. In those decades following the Civil War, democracy, for those who had the right to participate, was quite vibrant. By then, it included African-American men in the South who had gained voting rights and were participating at high, right, high rates in elections, even after the demise of Reconstruction. And many were running for office, primarily as Republicans. Also, the People's Party emerged in 1892 out of the agrarian populist movement, and it too began to run candidates quite successfully. But at that very juncture, democracy was thrown into crisis. I want to zoom into North Carolina in the 1890s. There, Republicans and populists noticed that if they would join forces running candidates on what they called a fusionist ballot, they stood a chance of beating Democrats. At that time in the South, that was the party run by white elites. So that's what they did. In 1896, the fusionists managed to elect Republicans as governor and to the majority of North Carolina's seats in the U.S. House of Representatives and this, their state assembly. So Democrats' worst fears had come to pass, and they plotted their way back to power. In 1898, they staged a coup d'etat in the city of Wilmington. It was the state's largest urban area and a success story. African Americans were moving into the middle class. Three members of the Board of Aldermen were Black, as were numerous public sector employees. The Daily Record was a Black-owned newspaper, and as a daily, it was the only one of its kind in the nation. Democracy seemed to be on the rise. On the morning of November 10th, nearly 2,000 white men who belonged to paramilitary groups gathered at the city armory. They marched to the offices of the Daily Record, set the building on fire, and watched it burn. 
Then they advanced through black neighborhoods and murdered hundreds of residents. They dragged prominent people from their homes and took them to the train station and made them leave town. Before the day was out, the coup leaders then at gunpoint forced the resignations of the mayor and aldermen and installed their own in their place. On January 6, 2021, the similarities were all too striking. Just like in 1898, armed white supremacists were once again the most visible in the insurrection. But in both instances, it was political party leaders who incited the violence and spread the misinformation. And what occurred in both events was that these party leaders were unwilling to abide by the most fundamental principle of democracy, that when elections are held, someone will lose. And when you as a candidate or your party loses, you have to accept the outcome, stand down, concede, and communicate that to your supporters that they must do the same. So stepping back, the overarching question for the book that Rob and I have written is whether we should also be worried today that United States democracy is genuinely in peril and will continue to be. Now, some would say that despite everything that has ensued in these past few years, that democracy has prevailed and it's safe. Um, and many think that the United States is protected by having uh, an old constitution, the oldest in the world, complete with a system of checks and balances intended to fragment power. The United States is also wealthy, which is a factor that makes the loss of democracy more unlikely. In addition, while the nation in the 1790s included institutions that repudiated democracy, most of all slavery, it did not become a full democracy until the 1960s and 1970s. But still, it's fair to say that democracy has progressed over time, particularly in recent decades, becoming more robust and inclusive. On the other hand, there are reasons to be concerned and to remain so. U.S. democracy can be considered at risk of deteriorating or backsliding. As we've learned from those who study democratic deterioration in other nations, these days we don't tend to see democracy taken at the barrel of a gun and or canceled elections or the disbanding of the legislature. Rather, it tends to happen in more subtle ways. Typically, elections are still held and yet democracy decays, such that a nation becomes a hybrid with some democratic features, but not others. It becomes a variant of what's called competitive authoritarianism. So in other words, we shouldn't be thinking of an on-off switch for democracy or not democracy, but rather a continuum. And the question is whether the nation is moving toward full democracy or backsliding in the direction of autocracy. So that's the task we take on in this book. We examined five earlier periods in American history when people were concerned about backsliding. We observed the patterns that ensued, and then we analyzed the contemporary period in light of what we've learned. Now, by democracy, what we mean is a system of representative government with accountability to citizens. And there are four pillars that make this work. The first is free and fair elections and abiding by the outcome of the elections. The second is the rule of law. Third, the legitimacy of the opposition. And fourth, the integrity of rights, meaning civil liberties, civil rights, and voting rights. These features give us indicators that we can assess in the five historical periods that we study in order to assess whether democracy is advancing or retreating. Now we've learned from those who study democracy around the world that four key threats make it vulnerable. 
And the first of these is political polarization. Democracy works well when there are multiple groups and identities in a society and people have overlapping or what we political scientists call cross-cutting affiliations. Um, what that means is that you associate with people who have different views than you, whether in your place of worship, your workplace, civic organizations, etc. What's problematic is when all of these differences increasingly align and people sort themselves into two camps of us versus them. Then politics ceases to be a process involving negotiation and accommodation. Rather, it becomes like mortal combat and opponents seem like enemies. The second threat is what we call conflict over the boundaries of the political community. Democracy works well when people agree on who is a member and what their status is. If there's an unresolved formative rift from the nation's founding over who is included, that can reemerge as a source of trouble again and again, whether it's over race, ethnicity, gender, etc. In the periods we examine, battles over race take center stage uh, over and over again, especially concerning those most overtly excluded in the United States founding African Americans. The third threat is rising economic inequality. Places where inequality is high and growing are more likely to suffer democratic deterioration. Why? The reason is that the affluent become worried that the masses will impose redistributive policies and higher taxes on them. So to protect their interests, they seek to solidify their power and they're willing to support repressive measures to do so if that's what it takes. Finally, the fourth threat is executive aggrandizement. This refers to the enlargement and concentration of powers of the nation's top leader. And in the United States, this means the president. Um, and this leads to the demise of checks and balances in a way that can make a nation more prone to tyranny. So all four of these threats, Rob and I find, have waxed and waned uh, over the course of American history, and they've combined in different ways at different times. Uh, but what we've learned is that American democracy has been fragile. Uh, it's been in crisis time and again. One threat alone, political polarization, created havoc in the 1790s, right out of the gate, right after the nation's founding. In the 1850s, the confluence of three threats precipitated the Civil War, and these same three threats combined again in the 1890s. So I want to return to that era now, uh, picking up where I left off at the, at the beginning. A few months after the coup in Wilmington that I described, the North Carolina Democratic Party leaders took measures uh, to make their power permanent statewide. They scaled back voting rights by establishing poll taxes and literacy tests. As one Democrat who was a state senator put it, he favored, quote, a good, square, honest law that will always give us a good Democratic majority, end quote. What happened in North Carolina brought out into the open a major transformation that was occurring more quietly all over the South during the 1890s as white elites shut down the political opposition. The federal government, including Republican presidents, permitted this. In 1898, President McKidley heard the pleas of African-Americans in Wilmington asking for help, but failed to intervene. As disenfranchisement happened in state after state, President Theodore Roosevelt simply watched. Then President Taft went so far as to praise the restrictive rules for excluding from the electorate what he called an ignorant, irresponsible element. 
By the end of the decade, all four pillars of democracy had suffered harm. The main result was the disenfranchisement of millions of black men and some poor whites. And once blacks lost political power, their civil liberties and civil rights were taken away as well. Jim Crow was established and it lasted 60 years. So this was major backsliding in the United States. And white Southern elites regained extra political power, not only to rule in their own states as autocrats, but also to exercise an outsized voice in national politics for the next half century. So now I'll turn things over to Rob. Thanks, uh, Suzanne. Um, and thanks to Peter and LSE for hosting us. Um, so I'm going to pick up the story, uh, essentially where Suzanne left off. As Suzanne just recounted, the 19th century saw the convergence of uh, three threats, polarization, conflict over membership, the, the, the resurgence of white supremacy, and uh, the rise of economic inequality um, that resulted first in the Civil War in the middle of the century, and then, as Suzanne just described, in uh, mass disenfranchisement in the late 19th century. The story of American politics in the 20th century is largely a story of the rise of the fourth threat uh, that Suzanne described a few minutes ago, executive power, uh, and mostly in a context where the other three threats were uh, receding. So our story about executive power, um, this is a story that lasts, that goes back really to the very early 20th century, but our story begins in the 1930s with the Great Depression and the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt. Um, FDR took power in 1933 in a moment of deep economic and political crisis. Um, it was the trough of the depression. Democratic regimes in Europe were um, beginning to uh, decay into uh, uh, various forms of authoritarianism, fascism in particular. And many Americans expected FDR to assume a similar kind of dictatorial power. Uh, many liberals, many supporters of, the, of Roosevelt's um, urged him to do so. For example, the liberal newspaper columnist Walter Lippmann. Um, and to make a long, complicated story somewhat short, Roosevelt did not, in the end, assume what we would consider today to be dictatorial power. But he did oversee the dramatic expansion of the powers of the presidency considerably. Not because he seized power, uh, but because Congress gave it to him. Much of this is well known. The policy authority of the presidency grew, the size of the administrative state, the bureaucracy that the president oversees expanded. Uh, the president was given new White House staff. Um, some of the things that um, Roosevelt tried to do uh, to gain greater control of the government uh, failed, court packing, for example, in 1937. Uh, less well-known is something that Roosevelt did um, in 1940, just as the United States was on the cusp of entering uh, World War II, where Britain was already in the war, the United States was not yet in the war, and Roosevelt was consumed with anxiety at that time about um, uh, uh, worries about um, Nazi and, to a lesser extent, communist subversion in the United States. Roosevelt signed a secret uh, memo which was actually authored by J. Edgar Hoover, who was the director of the FBI, the internal security uh, force in the United States. Um, it was Roosevelt signed a secret memo authorizing illegal wiretapping 
in response to these fears of subversion, primarily targeted at foreign nationals, but also at U.S. citizens. Um, it gave Hoover and the intelligence services a fair bit of leeway to deploy the power of the government um, under presidential order against um, not just foreign nationals in the United States, but, uh, but American citizens. The bottom line about the 1930s is that democracy persisted in that um, it didn't devolve into authoritarianism. The United States did not become a fascist regime the way many in Europe did, but it did so without challenging the systemic and foundational racial inequality that underlay American politics coming out of the 1890s, as Suzanne described. And it survived with a new set of tools of executive power across the board that, grew, that only grew in the ensuing decades with the establishment of the national security state during and after World War II um, that led to an increasing focus on domestic surveillance um, and, and on executive power as a portfolio of tools that were available not only to help the president manage policy, manage the economy, and oversee uh, the government, but also a set of tools that were available for political interference by an ambitious president, um, which is what we see uh, very briefly in the 1970s when Richard Nixon becomes president. Um, Nixon really weaponized uh, the tools of the presidency, was the first president uh, to do that. Um, most, this is most well known in the, in the story of Watergate, uh, which we narrate in the book. Um, Watergate is really just the sort of tip of a very large iceberg of executive weaponization in which Nixon systematically used the power of the executive apparatus to target his political opponents, his enemies. Um, um, I could go, we could go on at great length about this, but I won't, although happy to talk about it in the Q&A. Ultimately, and this is a, a touch point for thinking about uh, today, ultimately Nixon was brought down um, by a bipartisan coalition in Congress. Enough Republicans eventually supported his removal um, that he resigned before he could be impeached. And by the constitutionally faithful behavior of other actors in the system, the Department of Justice, which investigated, judges which enfor who enforced the law, the press, and so on and so forth. Um, in the 1970s, what we saw was the growth of executive power, while the other threats were relatively low, polarization, um, um, conflict over race, race, and economic inequality were at a relatively low ebb. Executive aggrandizement by itself was enough to destabilize democracy, but democracy again uh, persisted. Um, these historical episodes, which we've really touched on only briefly here, there are others in the book and we're happy to expand on these in the Q&A. Um, these episodes reveal, um, as Suzanne indicated, that American democracy has been much more fragile, much more frequently than we often think. They, these crises re recur. Um, for those of us who grew up and came of age in the uh, second half of the 20th century, uh, we need to remember that, that this was a time of unusually stable um, and, and calm uh, stability for American democracy. Um, over and again, if we look more broadly and deeper into the past, over and again, the country has risked instability and violence and the diminution of rights 
um, in short, the possibility of what political scientists call uh, democratic backsliding. Um, the four threats have waxed and waned, have come and gone, have combined and recombined throughout history in a number of different ways, leading up to uh, today, to back to today. And when we say today, we don't just mean, you know, sort of now-ish, we mean actually today, as, pres as Peter indicated in his intro, um, we're, we're competing with the trial of the president uh, in the United States Senate. So we're grateful to those of you who have given up watching that and spend, or <laughs> spending some time with us. Um, we're in a moment of an extremely dangerous convergence. For the first time ever in American history, we face the convergence of all four of these threats at once. Um, and this means we think that democracy is genuinely at risk. A lot of this story is familiar and we won't belabor it here. Um, polarization is at, at an extremely high level today. The sense of not just conflict and disagreement between the parties, but, um, but uh, uh, a real sort of us and them uh, relationship between the two sides in politics. Um, um, the, the sense in which uh, opponents are not just political antagonists, but enemies. Now, we should point out that this is not really symmetrical. Um, it's not that both parties have moved away from the center. Um, one party, I think, has really seriously gone off the rails and is behaving in many ways like an anti-democratic, anti-system party that's willing to go to any lengths um, to win elections, regardless of the consequences for the democratic system. It may no, not go too far to say, as, as our colleague uh, Daniel Ziblatt of Harvard has said, um, that the, America, the Republican Party may be the most serious threat to American democracy today. Um, that's one threat. Um, conflict over membership, particularly over race and immigration, has grown and has increasingly fused with partisanship. That is, the parties are divided over questions about race and systemic racism and racial justice and immigration in a way that hasn't happened in a long time. Um, third, we hardly need to describe rising economic inequality. And, and, and finally, um, the executive grand aggrandizement, the growth of presidential power that I just described has continued to grow through the Bush and Obama, <coughs> excuse me, and, and Trump administrations. This rise, this combination of threats predated Donald Trump. We regard Trump as a symptom rather than a cause, um, but he's actively intensified them. Um, uh, the examples of, of that are, are too numerous to mention. Um, he didn't cause these things, as I said, but he's benefited from this unhappy convergence, and he's had an unerring instinct to make things worse at just about every turn. Um, and as Suzanne indicated, the attributes of democracy, these pillars of democracy, have really suffered damage under these conditions over the last four years. Um, the conduct of elections, free and fair elections, continued voter suppression, the rule of law, um, think about um, Trump's ability to flout um, the emoluments clause of the Constitution and, and make money off the presidency, essentially. Um, the idea of a legitimate opposition, the idea that you and I can disagree um, without being enemies. And, and as Suzanne indicated at the top, the consequences of that damage, I think, were on full display um, just about a month ago as a resentful and violent, almost all white mob, flying many flying Confederate flags and other white supremacist symbols, under the incitement of the presidency of the United States, attacked the Capitol. Um, 
um, a president who spread deliberate falsehoods about the 2020 election and telegraphed to his most ardent supporters his contempt for democracy, which um, the, pres the political scientist Adam Jaworski defines, this is Jaworski's definition of democracy, is a system in which parties lose elections. Um, now that he's gone, and his actions are under some careful scrutiny in the Senate, we we're, we're breathing a sigh of relief just like everybody else, I think. Um, but we do worry that our sigh of relief might be premature because all of these conditions that produced the Trump era of the last four years um, are, are sti still exist. Um, let me just close by suggesting that um, we don't think that these conditions necessarily determine what happens in a me mechanistic sense. That we're not, you know, doomed to slide into authoritarianism. Um, what conditions do is they enable leaders and citizens to make choices. And our, our American democracy, and I think democracy around the world today, faces a hard problem. And that is, um, our diagnosis doesn't necessarily give us a clear roadmap forward. We need to understand better what kinds of reforms might improve the commitment to democracy. But what we ultimately think is that it's that commitment to democracy that needs to be front and center. Um, um, Americans still believe in democratic values across lines of party and ideology and, and religion and so on and so forth. The question that I think Americans and, and, and supporters of democracy everywhere need to face is how to make preserving and restoring democracy itself a top political priority. Um, and I think that's as good a place as any to uh, leave off. And we really welcome uh, your questions and the discussion. Wow, that's great. Um, Suzanne and Rob, that was a terrific synopsis um, of your book. Um, it's already generating a lot of questions in the chat. I think I see about 18 there right now. Before we turn to these questions, the first thing is I wanna just welcome. Um, we have people from all, literally across the globe with us, folks from Libya. I wanna welcome you from the, from the US, from Turkey, Ivory Coast, Greece, Nigeria, Malaysia, Australia, the Czech Republic, Bangladesh, Canada, Sri Lanka, the list just keeps going on. So welcome everybody. Um, I think I want maybe uh, exercise the, the chair's prerogative and ask maybe the first question, because I, 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 um, you make a very compelling argument in the book um, about the pathways to the current crisis. Um, but I wanna ask you a little bit more, maybe push you a little bit more where Rob ended up at the end on um, maybe if we could call it like the remedy or you know the path forward out of this. Cause you've, you've sketched, I mean, this is a, it's not a trifecta, it's a quadfecta. I mean, this is like a perfect storm, all four of these. Um, causal mechanisms, I suppose we could describe them, have, are, are showing up, have shown up at the same time to create this perfect storm. And what you said, Rob, towards the end was <clears throat> that, that American voters are 
you know, that they're concerned about democracy and that, um, and that they're alarmed about authoritarianism. And, and I, and I want to play devil's advocate here. I, I have a lot of sympathy for that position. Um, but as you know, there's mounting evidence by people like Larry Bartels at Vanderbilt and, and, and others who are suggesting that there's a growing number of, of voters, um, especially, but not only, um, but especially in the Republican Party, who are, are essentially willing to trade off, I mean, Bartels doesn't put it this way, but I'm putting it this way, trade off democracy for policies that protect their advantages. Um, and, um, and that this is a, you know, I, I guess I'm wondering what's your response to that? I mean, is, is that accurate? And if it's accurate, how does one cut into that? I mean, is the solution changing, you know, the mechanisms of voting in the United States, given the polarization to go to proportional representation? Is it, you know, that the U.S. should move to some kind of multi-party system, you know? I, could, you, could you kind of just talk to that side of it, you know, given the, the picture the kind of dire picture, you know, that you've painted and, you know, and, and, um, and it's easy to, to agree with it. What's the way out? How do we dig ourselves out? And what does the past tell us about how you get out? Um, well, I'll, maybe I'll start out here. That's, it's a really hard, hard question. So um, for one thing, these, Four threats, once they're um, set in motion and intensifying, they take on a life of their own. And there are not simple solutions to rein them back in. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, really, the more you study the dynamics of polarization, for example, the more you, you see how that works. So, you know, I, I had long thought, what would it take to rein things back in? I thought maybe a major national crisis mm -hmm. would bring people together. Well, then we had the pandemic and it actually, you know, has heightened polarization, the way people respond to it in the United States about, you know, whether you're willing to wear a mask or not, just um, plays into polarization. So, um, so reigning in the threats is, is not an easy solution. Uh, and then, you know, people will often say, well, why don't we just get rid of the electoral college or, you know, change some of these structural features of the United States that are so problematic and that really have, you know, always limited democracy. But doing those things, it, that's not easy either because we don't have the political will to, to do that right now. So what I think is that um, the, the best way forward is trying to strengthen what we call the pillars of democracy. Mm -hmm. um, so um, free and fair elections, um, the rule of law, the legitimacy of the, of the opposition and the integrity of rights by trying to, um, you know, Democrats generally today support these. The problem is that the Republican party has increasingly become an anti-system party a party that is putting winning above and you know dominating above the practices of democracy 
but there are members of the Democratic Party, um, and there are, you know, rank and file people as, as well as some elected officials who do still want to, um, support these major pillars of democracy. So I think that the best thing now can be trying to shore those things up together. So for example, um, there is, uh, you know, an, an effort to try to strengthen voting rights. Um, and I think that would be a, a, a great goal. Uh, to pursue at this point, Rob, do you want to add anything? Or yeah, no, I think I think that's I think that's right. I mean, it is it is the really hard question. Um, so thanks, Peter, for leading off with that. My question is no, and I think I think I think it's the right question to ask. I mean, I think one of the one of the challenges, as Suzanne said, is that you know. Even though most Americans of all of both parties support democratic values, mm-hmm. um, the parties are not at the at the at the at the party level. The parties are not equally committed to democracy right now. So I think Suzanne is absolutely right that we need to focus on shoring up the idea of free and fair elections and the rule of law and these these pillars, these attributes of of, of a healthy democracy. Um, which are things that we should be able to agree on. The dilemma is that one party, the Democrats are committed to these things, you know, vocally and visibly, and the Republicans are at best divided over whether or not these things are valuable, at least through the Republicans in public office, Republicans in Congress and in, in, in state legislatures. So, you know, a month ago, we were all celebrating the hero, heroism of sort of low-level, state-level election officials mm-hmm. who protected the integrity of the election from this onslaught by the president. But now we're seeing similarly state legislatures introducing voting restriction reforms. And um, um, uh, so the Republican Party at best is divided over these questions. And at worst, as Suzanne said, has become an anti-democracy, anti-system party. So, you know, as much as we might want to say that we agree on these things, we're relying on one party at the moment, the Democrats, to carry the water. And that uh, puts us in a, in a difficult position. Yeah, although as you allude to, I mean, allude to the fact that there are there's tensions in the Republican Party and the where you ended up in your argument, there, there's a presumption that there are Republicans that would be responsive. And, and this brings me to a cluster of questions. So there's already 33 questions in the, in, the, in, the, in the question box here. And one group of them um, has to do with, I guess we could call this the wig question. So, um, Helen Jones asked, do you think this is the end of the Republican Party as we knew it? Will it split? Can it recover? Archie Clark, a different take on the question on on this this, uh, issue. Do you believe the Republican Party will continue to follow the path that Donald Trump has set out? Or will they attempt to, to reshape the party and move away from Trump for the 2024 election, and just to kind of maybe complicate it, is there's a series of questions here also about what Joe Biden should do, and should he be 
reaching out, making efforts to reach out to the more moderate, if you will, moderate conservative Republicans. Um, It's not clear from this whether it's to sow greater division in the Republican Party or to somehow rebuild a lost center, you know, to deal with the problem of polarization. But I thought maybe we start here with this question about the Republican Party. We also have a cluster of questions that I want to come to next about putting the U.S. in comparative context. But let's start with the Republican Party. All right, I'll, I'll start out. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that the, um, the death of the Republican Party is greatly overstated. Um, you know, there were a, a few moments, I think, um, in the very last days of Trump's presidency when, you know, Mitch McConnell kind of made noises that um, he was open to um, conviction, perhaps, that, um, that people were talking about that. But I think um, that was very short-lived. Um, in fact, uh, the Republican Party has shown itself to be a very um, s- uh, strongly unified party, despite its uh, strange bedfellows, despite the fact that, you know, since the 1980s, it has brought together social conservatives and fiscal conservatives. And increasingly, it has tran- uh, transitioned um, to becoming a party that um, has um, this, you know, very socially conservative base and a base that is um, at the least not committed to um, strengthening civil rights um, and, uh, and then more ardently comfortable with white supremacy. Um, and so I think that in a sense, Trump um, picked up on something, on a potential in the Republican Party that had been there for a while and other political leaders had not been willing to go there. So uh, John McCain, Mitt Romney, they were not willing um, to, to cater to those kinds of inclinations of the party, to nativism and white supremacy. And Trump had no problem doing that. And uh, he, it helped him to win the election in 2016. Um, and as much as there are continuing tensions in the party, I think that um, the the different components of the party know that they need each other. Um, you know, there's a core of the Republican Party, which is very committed to serving the most affluent Americans and business. They got what they wanted from the Trump administration. They got major tax cuts and uh, deregulation, and they are willing to put up with the other aspects of the party, the other components, because that's how they win elections. So I think um, we're not going to see the party move away from Trump, even if Trump fades into the background. You know, this really began before Trump with the Tea Party. um, And of course, it has much older roots. We could go way back. But but I think we're going to continue to see the Republican Party looking more uh, like that as it moves forward. Um, But I'll, I'll leave the rest for you, Rob. Just to add to that a little bit, I think um, it's important to remember that the next national election in the United States is not the 2024 presidential election, but the 2022 midterm congressional elections. Um, In almost always, the president's party loses seats 
in congressional midterm elections. So it's very, very likely that the Republicans will gain seats in um, one or both houses of Congress in the next um, uh, in the next midterm. So, um, you know, the Fifth Senate right now is split 50-50, which gives the Democrats control because Vice President Harris is the tiebreaker. Um, and their control, their majority in the House of Representatives is very small. So we're looking at the very strong likelihood that in years three and four of the Biden presidency, he'll be facing one, if not both houses of Congress controlled by um, Republicans. So that uh, this is sort of adds fuel to the argument Suzanne was making, that there's no reason to expect the Republican Party to go away um, or to change its behavior. Um, and that, that um, brings me to, uh, to the question about Biden. Um, you know, I think what one of the things that we seem to see Biden doing right now is um, learning from the experiences of the Obama presidency. And the first a uh, couple of years of the Obama presidency, the Democrats again had um, unified control of Congress for a short time um, with larger margins, in fact. Um, and even then Obama had, uh, Obama's uh, approach was to try and be a unifier, try and be a compromiser, try and reach out um, to Republicans. And Republicans absolutely put up a wall of obstruction. Um, didn't go along with anything, not a single vote for the Affordable Care Act or for the stimulus that um, the Obama administration passed in its first year um, in the financial crisis. Um, and I think uh, Biden is showing much more willingness to go it alone, to figure out a way to do things without the participation of the Republicans, without Republican votes, to use these arcane budget procedures in Congress um, to do things without Republicans. You know, this is a risky game for Biden. On the one hand, it'll be good for him and the Democrats if the Democrats, if the government can do things that help people and begin to restore some faith in government. On the other hand, it doesn't do anything to assuage um, the sort of us versus them polarization that's taken hold. Well, I could continue with that line of, <laughs> those are great answers. Um, I'm going to switch though because we've got a bunch of questions. Probably doesn't surprise you. You're we're we're here at the LSE. We're 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 in the UK, and we've got some questions that are that about the U.S. putting the U.S. in comparative context. And 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 one of these comes from I think I have this right. The right honorable Baroness Stewart um, isn't the lesson that democracy is fragile everywhere, but a a, a somewhat different spin on it. Um, is from Sam Bradley, where he asks, are the four pillars of democracy specific to America, or can they be used as a model to aid the introduction of democracy elsewhere and, you know, elsewhere in the world? Like when you, uh, presumably, I mean, you both have comparative sensibilities and, 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 and perspectives and have, you know, done comparative research. When when doing this project, you've thought uh, presumably a lot about that. And so I'm wondering if you can speak to that and say a few words about that. Yeah, I can, I can start with that one. Um, the comparative sensibility and thinking comparatively about the United States is really um, how we started off writing this book. Um, it began um, uh, really after the 2016 election when we like 
many of our colleagues who study American politics were sort of gobsmacked by what had happened. And we began to talk to colleagues who study other parts of the world, who study the rise and fall of democracy elsewhere in the world. And they would say things like, um, you know, what the first questioner said, you know, oh, yeah, democracies come and go. You know, we had a good run in the United States. Or they would say, yeah, yeah, this reminds me of what happened in, and then they'd reel off some list of horror story countries where democratic governments had slid into some kind of authoritarianism, Turkey, Hungary, Venezuela, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and so our, our analysis of the things that threaten democracy, the four threats of the title of the book, comes directly out of our uh, thinking about the, the comparative setting. That is, what is it that we know from the study of democracy around the world are particular, is particularly threatening uh, uh, to democracy? Democracy is fragile everywhere, of course, but what I think that we were trying to respond to was a sense among people, uh, both Americans and people who study American politics, this sort of sense that American democracy was somehow invulnerable, that American democracy was solid, and that, yes, perhaps at the beginning we weren't a complete democracy, many people were excluded over time, but that there's a sense among Americans that the story of American democracy is one of progressive improvement over time, mm -hmm. um, and that we've been striving toward this ideal and toward this goal, and that we're, we're getting closer, ever closer and closer and closer. Um, and that's just not true. It's just not true about the United States. And so I think what's particularly revealing when we set the United States in this comparative context is how we can see the same kind of ebb and flow, the same kind of back and forth, up and down um, that we see elsewhere. And, and you know, to, those, to people outside the United States, the idea that the United States is subject to the same forces as everyone else might not be a revelation, <laughs> um, but, but, but we thought it was an important way of thinking about the United States, of helping Americans think about the United States. And in the U.S., it is a revelation. <laughs> so, yeah. um, Suzanne, do you want to say respond to this, or should I put, we've, we've got about, we only have about eight minutes, so I'm happy to take this or move to another topic. Yeah, you could, I think Rob has covered it. You could yeah. move to another topic. So look, I've got a slew of questions. It's not going to surprise you at all. That has to do with the role of technology and its connection to polarization in the United States. And I think Ben Grosda of uh, LSE Conflict Studies um, has kind of captured it succinctly. Do we have any chance of reducing polarization while Facebook's business model exists in its current form by profiting off of polarization. But there's a series here about Twitter and, you know, also, um, you know, Fox versus um, uh, MSNBC. And given that your book goes back in time, I mean, people often don't realize that the press was incredibly partisan in the 19th century. And so maybe talk a little bit about that and technology and polarization and how, how different or similar the current crisis is to past ones on this dimension. 
Yeah, I'll start out here. Um, so uh, neither of us is an expert on technology and social media, et cetera. Um, but, you know, as a non-expert, I would say, you know, certainly um, it seems to exacerbate polarization. But I think we make a mistake if we assume that contemporary polarization comes from um, social media or particular kinds of technology today. And uh, yeah, Peter, as you were saying, um, I mean, frankly, it was when the United States was right out of the gate in the 1790s, that polarization grew very quickly um, in that, that first decade under the new constitution. Um, and uh, so uh, journalism was being used, then newspapers um, were being used as a vehicle um, to, uh, as uh, mouthpieces of the emergent um, political parties and uh, their party leaders. Uh, for communicating to the public, um, and uh, and they worked very well um, to do that. Um, and it was, you know, not only political leaders, but also ordinary citizens who became um, very polarized very quickly, really saw themselves as two different camps. And then um, we see that happening, uh, you know, in periods uh, in the 19th century as well, and again, newspapers playing a, a major role here. Um, so I think, um, you know, there's something more fundamental going on, a more fundamental political dynamic that's going on. And the uh, technology is a medium for it, mm-hmm. uh, but not the cause. It may help to exacerbate it and spread it more quickly. It may be leading to more nationalization of politics in the United States more quickly today, but it's, it's not the cause. And, uh, you know, our contemporary polarization has really been growing for, for decades. Um. Rob, should I, I go ahead and, and move on? Yeah, you can move on. That was okay, a perfect answer. Right. So um, I, we've got five minutes left here. There's a, you know, an interesting question that has come in here from uh, Jonathan uh, Ancatel, um, which focuses on the role of civic education and, um, and whether and how um, it might help restore democratic norms. Um, you know, and I, I think that the way that he frames the question is he wonders the extent to which the American education system in a sense is partly to blame for the kind of the situation today, uh, maybe in that it reproduces inequality, um, but, um, you know, I, I wonder if we could get you to speak to the role of civic education. Um, is there a role in trying to deal with the polarization and the nature of the crisis in, in American democracy today? I, I think, um, uh, first of all, I'd say I probably know even less about civic education and its impact on politics than I do about um, the media. So. <laughs> Um, we're entering a zone of speculation here. But I, I think to the extent that we think that the remedy to this involves, uh, you know, a commitment to democracy and democratic values and democratic procedures, it stands to reason that to the extent that people have a better understanding and appreciation of how democracy works, of how our institutions are structured, 
um, of, of um, you know, the sort of slightly messy, uh, sometimes Byzantine way that, that American politics works. I think, I think um, that kind of appreciation can only help. I mean, I think there's a lot, a big disconnect between people's expectations um, and, and the way things actually happen. Um, so I don't know, Suzanne, if you have anything to add to that, but I think there's something, I think there's something to that. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, both Rob and I teach big classes of intro to American politics. And uh, I feel like that kind of education is so essential for um, people understanding how complicated the political process is. Um, and uh, so I think that's, that's important. Um, and I think, you know, for, for appreciating the basic, you know, these pillars of democracy that we've been talking about, I think that um, Americans tend to take them for granted or really not think about the seriousness of them. And, and I think that that's essential. Uh, I think it would also be great to have education that helps people to be critical about um, news so that they're not so uh, um, vulnerable to absorb, to fake, to, uh, you know, conspiracy theories. Um, and, uh, and so on. But, um, at the same time, I don't want to overstate, you know, again, that's not a silver bullet. Civic education is not a silver bullet. Um, and I think there are a lot of people with plenty of education who have, um, gone along with a lot of the, uh, danger to democracy that we've seen in recent years. So, um, I think, you know, we need to be cautious about that. I think, you know, that's probably a great place to leave it. We are at the bewitching hour, and that's both kind of optimistic, but realistic. And, um, and I want to, you know, ladies and gentlemen, um, you know, it's been a great pleasure, um, to have the opportunity to, uh, to listen to, uh, Rob and, and, and Suzanne today. Plenty of food for thought here. Um, Robin Suzanne, on behalf of the U.S. Center and the LSE, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts about the future of American democracy. It's really been great to have you on the platform. Thanks so much.